or lasso. Within the context of awareness of awareness, this morning we'll probe quite deeply, as deeply as we can, into our very experience of being the observer. Who is observing? So it's in a way it's even deeper than the probe into the agent who is doing this and that, because we're not always doing things. Right? Sometimes we're just sitting there. But even when just sitting quietly, there tends to be a sense of someone in here who is observing, someone who is the real subject. So we'll be observing that. What's very important in this practice is that we don't come in with a preconceived notion or come in with the answer waiting to simply confirm it. And that is for those of you who are Buddhist or familiar with Buddhism or simply feel this is a really good Buddhist insight, that in fact there is no autonomous, self-existent, real observer in here. You may already have come to that conviction. And then with a little happy smile say, oh, I'm ready to do this meditation. Yep, I'm right. You know, and just kind of go in there, just basically intellectually confirming what you already believe, which basically is like a, a dog running around in circles chasing its tail. You, come, you came in with an intellectual conviction and you come out with an intellectual conviction. So as you can tell, this awareness of awareness practice is not about the intellect. It is about experience and probing more and more deeply into the very nature of experience. Right? And seeing what you see. So I will get a bit of, give a bit of guidance in the, in, in the actual meditation, so I won't try not to be redundant. But in this regard, the broader framework of you, meditation, and way of life is absolutely crucial. And that is within cognitive psychology. There are quite a few psychologists, I'm very sure, who refute the notion, or the, the hypothesis, that there really is a self in here, that somehow running things is separate, an observer, and so forth. But rather, they simply look upon a wide range of mental processes, states of consciousness, and so forth, but no autonomous subject who is somehow the real observer. But if one is approaching this academically from the perspective, let's say, of just cognitive psychology, does that conclusion, does it really... Does it really matter? Does it really influence the lives of those who hold it? Does it make anger any less strong, craving any less strong, arrogance, egotism, and so forth, any less strong? Does it influence one's behavior in any way, more benevolent, and so forth? Does it shift your way of viewing reality as you step out of your office? And, of course, that's an individual matter, so I, I won't try to make a generalization for every cognitive psychologist, but overall I would make this, this, this claim and that is if it's simply a, an assertion within cognitive psychology, but it doesn't impinge upon one's worldview, and doesn't impinge upon one's way of life, and if there's no practice to actually realize it, then it's just an intellectualism. It has virtually no impact at all. The same is true in, in cognitive neuroscience. There are, I think pretty much all cognitive neuroscientists would have come to the conclusion there is no self that is an observer, that's somehow controlling the brain, the CPU, the CEO of the brain, of the mind, and so forth, that that sense of a separate observer self is really an illusion. But then what do they say? After all, it's really just brain activity. And so then we find it all of the media, so much so it's now becoming ubiquitous, that the real agent is not human beings, the real agent is brain activity. It's neurons, it's parts of the brain. And so it's a view of selflessness which has actually become dehumanized rather than liberating. And once again, is there any worldview? Do, no, do cognitive neuroscientists have any means for actually realizing selflessness? So is there a way of life that supports that insight into our own identity? Is there a worldview, a way of viewing reality in between sessions outside of the lab that really modifies and shifts? I suspect not. 
In philosophy, the same thing. There's Hilary Putnam, who's one of my favorite, I think most provocative philosophers of recent, recent times, very distinguished Harvard philosopher. During the 1980, he, he wrote about a philosophy called pragmatic realism. Looks re- resoundingly like Madhyamaka, the middle way. It's really brilliant philosophy. But once again, does it actually, for the philosophers, shift their way of viewing reality when they step out of their office? Is there a meditation, a practice to realize these teachings that look an awful lot like teachings and emptiness, is there a way of life that supports it and also expresses such insight? My sense is clearly not. And finally the point, and that is in quantum cosmology, brilliant, brilliant physicist of the caliber of Stephen Hawking, you know, making these statements that really sound, oh, you're getting insight into the emptiness of the whole of the whole of the natural world, the whole universe. You're seeing it's all empty because it's all simply arising relative to systems of measurement, but there's no absolutely objective real world out there that science is describing. Sounds fantastic. But then when you read about his views on consciousness, he says, oh, I think the, I think the mind is like a computer. No, the, the brain is like a computer and the mind is like software. Turn off, the, turn off the computer and the software vanishes. And so an absolutely kindergarten level, I'm sorry, because I have great respect for him as a physicist, but this is kindergarten level. Of reductionism to the brain, to a computer, and the mind of the software, I mean, how much thought do you need to come to that conclusion? So for all the profound depth of his theorizing and the nature of the universe and the nature of measurement, and like, might there need to be a measurer, a conscious observer to make a measurement? Might consciousness not be really fundamental to the universe? And then, no, it's just the software to the brain, and it just vanishes when the brain dies. And so once again, there's just a radical disintegration, a fragmentation. So when making deep insights into quantum cosmology, but it doesn't make you any less arrogant, angry, craving, and so forth, any more ethical, and so forth, does it actually shift your way of viewing reality when you're outside of your office or lab? So it is absolutely not unique to Buddhism to have a profoundly integrated worldview, practice, and way of life. Buddhism in its strength has that. But so does Christianity in its strength. And so does Hinduism, Judaism. And frankly, so does materialism. Materialists, people like Daniel Dennett and others, they've really got their act together. They've got a materialistic way of viewing reality. They've got a materialistic, hedonic set of values and practices. And they've got a consumer way of life. They've got their act together. It's one integrated package. And it works really well for destroying life on planet Earth. Of course, that latter part was my opinion. Uh, but it is integrated. That's for sure. It's completely integrated. And each of those parts really reverberates and resounds and reinforces the other. So whether it's materialism, atheism, Christianity, traditional Judaism, Buddhism, and so forth, these three and the interface among the three, the view, the practice, the way of life, cannot be overemphasized. So if we would really like to see insight into selflessness, into the absence of there being some inherently existent real subject in here, for that to actually impact our lives in the tremendously beneficial way that it can, it's got to be actually shifting the way we view reality, be utterly immersed in practice, in meditative practice, and it should flow out, spill out into and permeate the whole way of life. And then we find this fountain that, you know, th- three fountains all flowing into each other. The, w- the way of life supports the meditation. Meditation supports the worldview. The worldview supports the meditation. Meditation supports the way of life. Three fountains flowing into each other. And you've got a celebration of Dharma. But if you just pluck one out and say, oh, my worldview is fine, my, my way of life is fine, but I really like Buddhist meditation. Lots of luck with that. It's going to be really just like a little ice skater. 
you know, skating along the film, the most superficial level of practice. So let's jump in. Let's begin as always, settling the body in its natural state. Take on this subtle challenge of settling your respiration effortlessly. And then gently calming the discursive mind with mindfulness of breathing. Let your eyes be at least partially open. Casting your attention downwards, very gently downwards. 
Rest your awareness evenly in the space in front of you, but taking nothing as an object, not even space itself. Just rest in the present moment. Sustaining simply a sense of presence, of being aware, without falling into distraction, without grasping onto any object. as you sit there quietly, invert your awareness in upon your own presence. Examining closely, seeing whether you have a sense of being someone in here, over on the subject side, inside. who is the observer of everything else. This is a practice of radical empiricism just sheer experience of looking within and seeing what arises as you seek out that which is observing. What comes to mind? What do you perceive? may have some experience of an appearance. It could be the appearance of your face. It could be something more subtle. As you seek to observe the observer, 
See what comes to mind. Do you, the observer, do you have location? If you think you are located inside the head, are you still maintaining a visualization of your head? And is there really anything inside that visualization? Or is it simply an appearance? With nothing inside it. Any, any more than there's anything inside a rainbow or inside a mirage. as you probe inwards upon yourself as the observer. Ask of your experience. Do you have a size? How big are you?
if you have a size. Then examine closely again. Do you have a shape or color? What attributes do you have, you the observer? If you come to the conclusion, there is no observer to be found. The observer has no characteristics. There is no observer. Hold that thought, hold that insight. And then ask of your experience, who just came to that conclusion? Observe yourself. And if you're 
if you will, gently begin the oscillation of inverting awareness in upon that which is observing, penetratingly, with concentration, with clarity, right in upon the nucleus of you, the observer, and then utterly release your awareness into non-objectivity, into space with no object. Invert and release.
then release the oscillation. Let your awareness come to rest, neither inside nor outside. Come to rest in its own place, holding its own ground. And simply rest in that awareness of being aware. I mentioned how conceptual insights in cognitive psychology, cognitive neuroscience, physics, conceptual insights may be very, very deep. I believe they are, in fact, at least in some cases. But unless those insights, those very intellectual or conceptual insights, are embedded in and suffused, saturate, throughout the whole course of the day, the way of actually viewing reality, the kind of practices we're doing, and the way of life in which the, the practices are embedded, then the impact will be negligible. But this is not only true from the, for these secular disciplines in modern academia, but it's also true in Buddhism, in Buddhist academia. So if you go to a Buddhist studies program in virtually any university, you may study and even get a PhD in Madhyamaka or teachings on Anatma. Many, 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 many academic books and papers have been written about these by Buddhists, by Asian Buddhists, by Western Buddhists, but once again, if it just remains on an academic level, intellectual level, the impact is negligible. It may, you may, may as well be writing about geology or anything else if it doesn't get embedded, doesn't get embodied. So this is true of modern academia, but, uh, but also it's true of traditional Buddhist colleges like the monastic universities that the Tibetans have reestablished in India or those that still linger in Tibet. Here in Southeast Asia, monastic training here and also in, in Buddhist colleges in Japan and so on. What happens an awful lot, it's almost the rule rather than the exception, is that for years on end, people will get academic training and they'll study all the great treatises of the Zen tradition, Theravada, Indian, Tibetan, and so forth. Years and years and years of training. 
and yet no connection really to meditation. No real shift of worldview, no profound impact on way of life. And so one acquires like a heavier and heavier and heavier backpack of Buddhist knowledge. So you're almost groaning under the weight, but it's never actually assimilating into life. And so this is exactly the opposite of what Padmasambhava suggested in the book Natural Liberation. He said there are those who study theory first and then they get to practice afterwards. My tradition is just the opposite. First establish the meditative state and then let the, the theory emerge from that. And then it's this whole dynamic worldview, meditation, way of life. But first establish the meditative state. And he makes it very, very clear he's talking about shamatha. So there's advice that's almost universally ignored by the Theravadans. By the, by the Theravadans yeah, it's all Vipassana, hardly any shamatha. By the Nyingmapas, almost entirely ignored. By the Glupas, forget about it. All ignored. And in the Zen tradition, the very notion of shamatha almost vanished. And so perhaps it would be good to go back and listen to these great teachers. Not me, I'm not a great teacher. I'm just an old California hippie. But Padmasambhava wasn't. He wasn't a California hippie. There was a person who really knew what he's talking about. So to make the mind serviceable. And there it is. Relaxation, stability, vividness. And then as we venture now between sessions, if we just let, let the river of the meditation flow into your post-meditative experience. So you're just doing whatever you're doing in between sessions. But then time and again, ask, who is the observer? And not asking to set up a whole chain of thought. But as you're engaging with the environment, other people, eating in the dining hall and so forth, who is the observer? What's, and what's actually arising? Not to come to some intellectual conclusion, but to more penetrating experiential insight into how you actually experience yourself as the observer. That can really change. That's something of great value. All of us all. Enjoy your so-called post-meditative experience. See you a bit later.